Hey everybody, it's Ned Buskirk. Welcome back. So, I've been thinking a bit lately about this idea that I kind of learned maybe early in all this work with You're Going to Die. I'm sure it came up before that. I mean, it's been a concept for thousands of years this age-old idea that you can die before you die. I think Eckhart Tolle said this. He said, death is a stripping away of all that is not you. The secret of life is to die before you die and find that there is no death. It has roots in Islam and Sufism and other religions. And I think when I first heard it, I was excited by it or that's cool you know like when you first find out about buddhism (laughs) and then years later i think i came into conflict with it it's like what does that even mean i mean how do you die before you die even when you talk about like the ego stuff it's like what do you how do you get there what do you What do you mean? And I'm sure if I just had time to go meditate in the mountains with a guru, I would go through the days and days and days and days to get to knowing that concept somehow or being it. I don't know. But lately, especially in holding space with our grief and healing workshops, I've just realized a new relationship with that idea, the die before you die. I've been feeling very present to the process of grief in these spaces more than usual and more than ever. There's a time when I was doing you're going to die once a month, maybe for the open mic. And now We run multiple workshops in a week. We do our memorials, our open mics. The the month is full, the podcast. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of work and space holding happening. And the grief and healing workshops have been particularly wonderful thing to get out of this crazy time, this wild year. But just being with those participants and the grief that gets expressed there and witnessed And it dawned on me recently that die before you die means to grieve fully. Thinking about how when my mom died, I was pulled into that portal of loss by the death of someone that was as much a part of me being alive as I was more than anybody. And if you've suffered that kind of loss, then you know what it feels like to be pulled into that that portal, that wormhole of death, that portal of death that our loved ones will all inevitably go, including us. But to lose my mom at the early age of 26 and feel that and be changed by it forever, almost like I'm always partly there. I'm always partly where she went. Forever. Until I follow her more completely like we all will. But while I'm here to grieve like that, to partly be there and feel that loss fully, to make that death me, and so then to die before I die. And noticing the grief and the transformation of the tears and the being in the silence, the being with the grief. It's not a fixing, it's not a get it through you so you don't have to deal with it anymore. It's really like, what is it now? Make it you. And getting to share that with community has been really, 
I mean, I, I would say life-changing this year. I think I can say that. <laughs> or death-changing, maybe. And these podcast conversations, too, feel that way. I mean, I I know, you know, it's it's wild to have these conversations and cry and wonder what it's like for the listener. Um, but that it's a place to really be with these parts of who we are. And I love it. I love it. I mean, it's such a seductive place to be in this raw, vulnerable, mortal, like fully mortal, maybe more mortal than usual, (laughs) more mortal, mortal, mortal (laughs) than usual. And just listening and, and again, during a time like this, really knowing that just right here is the only place I need to be and getting that out of this too, but having it connect to my precious, fragile, fleeting being and talking with the guest for this episode is no exception to that experience. Lady Bird Morgan. It's funny, we've been connected, like most of the guests actually. It feels like this is a, a common introduction, but we've been connected for years. And and that's mainly due to Sandy Fish, who deserves acknowledgement for sure and likely will end up being on this this podcast. But Sandy Fish works with the Humane Prison Hospice Project. And she came to one of our open mics years ago and she reached out and asked if I wanted to talk with her about the program out at San Quentin, the Brothers Keepers program. It's a program where the men at San Quentin get trained. I don't even know if that's the right word, but it, it, it is like that. It is like a training in my understanding for these men to hold space with other, other men in San Quentin and especially around the hard parts of suicide ideation and being able to have someone to go to that you can trust that's, that's on the level with you who can really listen and hold where you're at fully so that you feel safe and can express yourself completely and work with these hard parts that, that many people feel, but that some of the men in San Quentin wrestle with and are confronted by. And so Sandy asked me to come in and do a talk, like be with the brothers keepers in San Quentin. And I, I remember being like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what that looks like at all, but there's no like not saying yes to this. There's definitely, it's definitely a yes, not knowing what's next. A lot of you're going to die feels that way. It's like, yeah, that's definitely next, but I don't know what's after that. So I said, yes. And as we got closer to the date for me coming in, I realized that I, I didn't have anything to say to these guys and um, I needed to come in and just listen. And so that was a really significant event that stands out amidst all the events I've done over these 10 years plus. And that that's a part of, or gave, gave birth to our alive inside prison program. But all that is to say lady bird is the co-founder and former executive director of the humane prison hospice project. And their mission is to implement end-of-life care in prisons by supporting and training prisoners to be caregivers. And that connects the Brothers Keepers. And so Lady Bird and I have been on emails and connected through events. And another connection with Lady Bird is her work with mental health. If you listen to the B.J. Miller episode, which I highly recommend, um, you'll hear more about that there. But that's another connection. And it felt worth having her on the podcast for those reasons, like just alone. And then we talked and was like, oh, this is so good to talk to you finally. It's so nice to just be in conversation with someone who cares about this end of life work and but tenderly and humbly with such a extraordinary story that leads to it and through it. Really happy to share this episode with you. Lady Bird has worked as a registered nurse, clinical social worker, healer, and educator for over 20 years. 
As I mentioned, she is the co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project and has worked with many other organizations, including the Zen Hospice Project, Doctors Without Borders, and is now currently, again, as I mentioned, collaborating with Mental Health, but also Commonweal and UCSF Mary Center's Last Acts of Kindness program. She holds space for families and caregivers, medical practitioners, as well as directors of programs and institutions around the world to find their clearest voice as they step across significant thresholds in aging, life, and death. Without further ado, let's just listen to the episode. There's so much I could say, right? There's always so much I can say, but let's just let the conversation speak for itself. Here's Ladybird Morgan. So I'm kind of like that dinosaur that's like, oh, I'm going to be dead soon. <laughs> my life, my, the way that I experience the world is not going to continue. Mm. I'm going to continue to appreciate trees and moving slower, but not everybody else is. Mm. And I think for a while I was really struggling with that. I was trying to fight against the, the evolution of things speeding up. Mm. I don't feel like I'm fighting it so much right now. Today, at least this is my answer today. Yeah, sure, sure. By tonight, you should call me later tonight. Yeah, <laughs> or I really feel in about an it. hour <laughs> right. when we're done. Yeah, yeah, I really feel all that. I really relate to that. I also really love the touchstone of the dinosaur. The yeah. <laughs> It's just been this animal in really, I mean, specifically in the you're going to die decade. I've been doing this, that it's that, oh, you know, wait a second, dinosaurs, what happened to dinosaurs, how dinosaurs experience time, that they're completely gone and that there's a there's something wise or or um, timeless about that. That's a that in a similar way, death offers me that kind of like, oh, just wait, that that kind of clears things out a little bit and gives yeah. you the perspective you need. I like that. That it's actually OK that you'll be completely gone. Yes, that, totally, <laughs> it's totally. totally OK. Like, oh, yeah. my my experience will be will happen and mm. it's OK. And it's um, I actually had this great conversation with um, an old friend. Um, Elizabeth Johnson, who created the Peaceful Presence Project, which is a, an end-of-life awareness program out of Oregon, where they do doula support work and advanced care planning and education to the community. And she was just sharing her experience around, you know, we were we were comparing notes around how so many people are to seem to be talking about death and dying all of a sudden. And there were all these programs popping up. And um, what does that really feel like and mean? And she said, you know, I just had to decide, like, okay, they're doing it that way. This is what feels right to me. And I can continue to do what feels right to me in yeah. this moment, even though it feels overwhelming around me. And I really appreciated how she spoke that, because I think sometimes you tend to want to just throw everything out. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, doing what I've been doing, I really appreciate that. And I would, I would wager to guess that you've been doing this work far longer based on what I know, even just from your bio information, but like there's a way you've been in the death and dying conversation for far longer than this kind of death positive movement and what we've seen emerge in the last five or 10 years around accessibility, to the death and dying conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, I guess I have a question for you. Do you feel like anybody is actually not in that conversation? <laughs> First of all, great. Yeah. Anytime you have a question, ask me. That's this is the kind of conversation I want to have uh, with you. And I really like that question. I, you know, I have to be careful uh, when I think about that. I think there's ways that you're going to die came into being because I didn't think anybody was. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't getting enough of the space to talk about my mom's death and my mother in law's death. And so my death. And so I feel like you're going to die came into being because I was needing that years after kind of the last time I held space with community other than maybe a bereavement group. um, The last time I'd held space with community around death and dying and those losses was with the funeral Mm -hmm. or my mother-in-law's memorial. So I think you're going to die came from thinking nobody was, but I think also what 
you're going to die's growth since then has proven is that people are and need to and want to. Mm -hmm. And I think you would probably agree with your own experience that for sure some people aren't. Some people are definitely turning that part of being alive off that numbing out from that eventuality, not sourcing it for a deeper, richer life or or even trying to be present to it. And, and maybe there's a way that it's a part of them, like no matter what, it's there. It's a truth. So in that way, yeah, everybody, I guess, is somehow in the conversation, even if it's denial. Right. I think that's maybe what I'm I'm getting mm. at. So I've, I've been thinking I've been thinking more about like, what does conversation mean? And we there's this assumption that it's with words Mm -hmm. that you have to express it to another person for them to hear it, for you to be in a conversation because you're in. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, whatever community effort or it's, it, re it requires someone to receive. Um, but it could be something, it could be nature, it could be spirit. Um, and I just, I've been thinking about it more. Like I have a nephew who, you know, struggles with communication and, until we can figure out a way to communicate with him, it seems like he's not in the conversation, but he is in the conversation. Mm -hmm. He's just in a different conversation. And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to expand my understanding of what does it mean to, to invite someone into a conversation that you think is important? Um, and this death and dying movement, you know, it's like we, I'm on that threshold of like, I think this is a, is a beautiful conversation, but what does that mean? And can I communicate with people, separate of words even, mm -hmm. um, in way, can I meet them where they are um, and how they're organically communicating about death and dying versus pulling them to my understanding and comfort. And right now it's all about me pulling them to me because <laughs> that's all that we know. That's how yeah. we know how to connect, right? We pull people to our, our table, mm -hmm. invite them to our table. Mm -hmm. Or as Frank used to say, invite them to the sandbox. Um, like Osuseski. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, invite them to the sandbox. The, the invite them to the sandbox thing is pretty wonderful. And I guess similar to the table is this, like, how do you want to play here? Um, but I do get what you mean when it's a inclination to come and do this version of grieving or engaging with mortality that I've been doing for years and the risk in that, mm -hmm. that you could close out connectedness because you're so sure that your way is the answer. Right. And I, I, I deeply and emotionally <laughs> appreciate that you putting that into words. You know, I, um, <laughs> I was thinking about the workshops we've been doing these grief and healing workshops. And I had the similar kind of, dawning on me where I realized one of the prompts that was missing from the workshop was the prompt. How, how have you grieved? How were you taught to grieve? How does your culture grieve? How does your family grieve? And that prompt, first of all, let me make room for the likelihood that people are doing grieving, that they're, they're not coming to you're going to die just because they can't find it anywhere. So they came to our nonprofit to get it. In fact, they probably know it. And that's why they recognize the place where they could get more of it. But the prompt was even valuable because some people react responded to the prompt with, well, you know, I grew up like with the uh, grin and Barrett and, let's just drink some tea real quick and have a pastry and then, you know, call the memorial done, you know? And, and, but that was a really important response too, like you said, um, in the way you're describing, it's like, well, then now I can be with you there and see what's next together in that understanding. Right. And that those, those ways of that we learn, like having the strong cup of tea and, you know, eating food or all of the different ways that we're taught, we're taught, for a reason, like that sort of going back to just basic psychology that everything you did, you did because it made sense in that moment. Mm -hmm. Your elders taught you that because that's what they understood and that's what made sense to them. So there wasn't like something wrong, inherently wrong with what was happening. It's just now you're in a new awareness and a new understanding and you're ready for something different. 
Mm. Um, but to not sort of punish the past um, for where you are at now, mm. which is a lot of what I feel like has happened in our movement and in most movements. It's like, oh my gosh, this didn't happen. If only I had, you know, mm. if only I had grieved that when I was five, I wouldn't be here now. It's like, well, yeah, but then you wouldn't be here now, period. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can't, we can't reverse and change everything. And what a gift to actually come to a moment like, oh, well, we can do this now. And um, there's a, a different kind of excitement around it versus uh, we're missing out. We've missed out. Yeah. Um, catching yeah. up for lost times. Like, wow, how cool. There's like a, you're going to die podcast, you know, <laughs> what in the world. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. I just think about when my mom died, the ways I didn't and wasn't when she died. Like I wasn't present or I kept running out of that room and calling people. Um, and that broke my heart. Yeah. For a long time. And then my mother-in-law died and I remember stopping my brother-in-law and the youngest in the family and reminding him to like slow down and be present and uh and since he's told me how important that was and there's no way that moment would have happened if i hadn't have gone through the loss of my mother and the ways that i wished it, that it had gone or i had been mm-hmm yeah, it's really beautiful that what's possible when your heart breaks open, mm. right? That there's potential in the breaking open from sadness and grief and regret and trauma that those are also like beautiful seeds that can transform your life. And it doesn't have to be a feel-good breaking open that brings us to a new awareness or ability to connect with your family. Yeah. You know, like you said, like who knows what would have happened had that not happened for you. Right. Um, the healing that takes place. I was I was listening to a woman, a mother, talk about her child. My nephew has Lennox Gastaut syndrome, and it's a intractable seizure disorder. It's really hard to work with, and it's very heartbreaking. And I was listening to a mother speak about her journey with her daughter and how what she came to realize was so much of what she was advocating for for her daughter she realized was going to help was going to help future children mm-hmm. her heart was breaking open her she was putting this effort into you know sort of like the planting of a tree really realizing that her daughter was a tree mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to be that she was going to necessarily experience all of the beauty and the realizations but that now you've shared with your family and that ripple effect mm-hmm and it's the ripple effect that for me, it's the ripple effect that I'm, that draws me into this work that, that keeps me alive in it. It's not so much that this individual person needs to have a, a perfect death or, you know, this prison has the perfect hospice program. It's that when anyone has access to being aware of where their heart is breaking open and what that, where that can guide them, then it just ripples out mm. and um, the impact is just exponential. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, was talking to Stephen Jenkinson for another episode and there was that idea even for someone dealing with cancer or being on their deathbed that there's some kind of act in that that's an act for the lineage, Mm -hmm. for the long conversation of the human race or even like you say, the spirit the soul, whatever the words are, but that there's an opportunity in a moment like that, maybe to be giving to something greater, even if it's like your presence of being in that death, but also the ways we learn from going through it and give to maybe our friends and family and that ancestral kind of connectedness, that those are gifts that go forward into other lives and deaths. 
I was yeah. thinking specifically for you, how long you've been working on the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Mm-hmm. It's funny we're talking about this because I feel like it's been a decade. It's been a decade for Sandy Fish, my colleague. She's been, I mean, over a decade for her. Right. Absolutely. I only got involved around 2015. So I'm still a newbie to the field of mm-hmm. um, prison hospice work. But yeah, it's it's a long trajectory. And again, going back to that, what I was saying about the different perspectives and what you see as important. You know, Sandy was compelled because of not wanting to see suffering in prison and um, having people die alone and die in a suffering place. And what compelled me was more of the impact of people being able to support that person mm-hmm. and how that impacted the whole world. Of course, Sandy had that perspective as well but we came at it from different angles Mm -hmm. um so yeah but i've i've been involved in it actively since 2015 and the prison work something that i relate to with our own prison program but but it's so new compared to how much time sandy and you have put into the humane prison hospice project Mm -hmm. but it's that like trusting that time works differently that your commitment to these things that you just articulated it's the long haul and that there is no fruition in your lifetime of that work. Even if your wildest dreams come true around implementing that hospice program into multiple prisons, that work shouldn't, shouldn't stop there. It is the what's next. And that that's something you're handing on in your life to other generations. And yeah, right. And it's the ability of the next generations to connect to it. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we work with um, Edgar Behrens, who's on our board, and he directed and created prison terminal, beautiful documentary about a prison hospice program. And when that the person who spearheaded that prison hospice program left, the program collapsed because that that energy wasn't there. And Mm. but it existed. It happened just like dinosaurs, right? Like the hospice (laughs) program was there. People were impacted. It mattered. So it's not that it doesn't matter if it doesn't stay forever. Mm. It's not that you, you know, you have to discount love because you fall out of love. Mm. Um, And that, that sort of both. And I mean, I struggle with it. It's not like I have this down by any means. (laughs) So (laughs) please don't misunderstand me by saying that, that I'm somehow, Oh yes, I have this. Yes. It's my biggest struggle. It's my, it's my biggest struggle, but Mm. it's also the part that um, keeps me inspired, which is, yeah. Like what if we did consider ourselves to be like trees where it's not just about our lifetime of what we experience in this moment, but it's about the future and the past and, That's not a lot of how we're oriented. We're really oriented towards immediate gratification, Mm -hmm. making sure your life matters, getting what you want, Um, even in our death, making sure you get the death you want. You know, it's Mm -hmm. now become this sort of capitalist model of death and dying, um, which I really am not very excited about. Hello, my friends. I just want to take my friends. Hello, my friends. All right, let's not get carried away, Ned. I'm not sure I'm your friend. <laughs> okay. Hello, person that's still listening. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Wanted to take a couple minutes. Needed to take a couple minutes, not just because I'm legally obligated. No, it's not legal. It's just, it's it's a part of an agreement and one I'm proud to have made with our sponsor, Coracao chocolate. So again, I, you know, I usually just like, do you like chocolate? Then you need to buy this chocolate. I mean, really, what other kind of promo, promo, <laughs> is that how you say the word? Promo do you need? Like, just go to coracaochocolate.com and I got a 20% discount code for you. Go to Coracao, C-O-R-A-C-A-O, chocolate.com. And when you pick all your lovely chocolates and put them in your cart, use the discount code chocolate20, 
chocolate20, and you'll get 20% off your purchase. And I know, I know some of you have been listening and you've even told me and messaged me and said, ooh, that chocolate sounds good. Yeah, well, find out for yourself. Like, go and get the chocolate. Like, buy the chocolate. Buy one bar and just see what I mean. That's really it, right? That's the that's the plug. But but I've also been trying to cover like all the wonderful ways that Cora Cow is available. And so today I want to talk about their their custom mixes, their little boxes you can make and put together. So if you go to the website, you can see there's a custom collections option. And when you go into the custom collections option, it lets you choose all the ways to package your chocolate and obviously, hopefully, choose your chocolate. And if you go to the website, you can click on custom collections and you actually get an option to make little boxes of your chocolates. You can choose a sticker like a infinity heart or a happy birthday or you are loved. And they actually like give you examples of what those stickers are. And then you can get like a hand tied bow. They actually ask you specifically, do you want a hand tied bow? Who doesn't want a hand tied bow? Uh, and then you can choose like how many chocolates you want to send and choose those chocolates, those truffles, like whatever they are. And all the chocolates, whether you get an 8-piece, 16-piece, 20-piece, all the chocolates are dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free, low-glycemic, vegan, and paleo-friendly. So it's just wonderfully yummy, sweet, addictive. I mean, we're not going to stop. We got to acknowledge it, right? I mean, it's part of why it's great. Like, what's not great that's that's not addictive? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't want to go into that particular conversation. What I want you to know is this is good chocolate. So you should check out the website, take some pics from your yummy options, put a box together for yourself, send it off to someone as a gift, let them know you love them. What better way to do it than with a sweet treat that supports a good chocolate company doing good chocolate work in the world who also supports a good podcast that you listen to. So again, go to coracalchocolate.com, check out all their wonderful options, put everything in your cart, and then use our discount code CHOCOLATE20 and find out for yourself how great a decision you made starting with this podcast and ending with that chocolate in your face. So I love doing the word from our sponsor, both because it's awesome that we have a sponsor. So just that alone is exciting. And I feel a lot of gratitude for that, as you know, dear listener. But I also really like it because it's a creative act that kind of connects to the performative part of who I am in the world, the entertainer. It's very interwoven into this you're going to die story which is amazing to do something like this and feel that part of me fulfilled. And even something as simple as getting to each episode creates some unique acknowledgement for a sponsor, a plug that sends the listener, hopefully to their website, to acknowledge them for acknowledging us, you know, you know, you know. And I've listened to podcasts for years and so I'm inspired by the way my favorite entertainers and hosts have always done that moment. But still, I sometimes fast forward through those moments, even my favorite podcasts and my favorite hosts doing the best plugs for their sponsor. Sometimes you're just wanting more of what the heart of the podcast is about even if it's only two minutes. So it feels kind of nice right after our word from our sponsor to give you something a little like more to drop back into. And so we've gotten in the habit of finding these moments from people's lives to share with you. And I asked Ladybird if she would record a little pocket of peace out of her life to let you experience 
And if you can, I encourage you to use this after my <laughs> jarring and exciting sponsor plug. Now that you've already gone to that website and bought your chocolate, you can just close your eyes and know it's in the mail and it's on its way. And you can just settle into this now before we get back into Lady Bird and my conversation. I asked Lady Bird if she would send us a little audio file of some atmosphere and she sent this from an evening walk on the mesa. And you might hear the sounds of birds and wind through a eucalyptus grove. One of Ladybird's favorite sounds. And so then, get back into the richness of what this particular episode has to offer through especially our guests' experience of life. beginning of that story would be, I, I think, um, be growing up, having grown up as a mixed race person. Mm-hmm. My mother's white and my father is um, African-American and mixed race, some unknown elements in there. Um, but I grew up in Spokane, Washington, which is a very white community um, um, with, and I had a white family. And so I, I had a lot of disconnect in terms of understanding how I, where I belonged in the world. Um, how to be seen or not seen and what it meant. And so at a very, as soon as I graduated from high school, I left Spokane and went um, to Sierra Leone. It was 1990. Mm-hmm. And I was in a program. It was completely unorganized. It was just a ridiculous program. And I ended up finding a place to live, getting a job in a rural health clinic, um, just as the war was starting with Liberia. Wow. And, wait a second. Wait, lady. Oh <laughs> my, that you... <laughs> You literally jumped from Spokane and that content. How in the hell did you make that leap? Like, how did you, what did you connect to? What did you know? Was I didn't know anything. There? I didn't know anything was waiting. What happened? Well, how did was, someone come up and sh- yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, well, no. Like, so what whoa. happened was I was so, I was, you know, like, like many teenagers, I, I was the one that had the hard experience in high school. I hated it. I hated my life. I, all I could do is I could barely graduate. Like I just mm-hmm. was taking like four classes. I wasn't, you know, at the top of any of those classes. Um, and during my, uh, the beginning of my senior year, my father, who I wasn't particularly close to, but, you know, I had a relationship with him. He was stationed in Germany for, he was in the military. And I thought, oh, I should go live with my dad and mm-hmm. go to high school in Germany. Wouldn't that be interesting? And I was discouraged from that, actually, from the, the school, the high school advisor said, you know, I think you should finish out your high school here, but here's a booklet of programs of international mm-hmm. travel, and you can look at this for when you leave. And one of the programs was the International Cultural Youth Exchange. You had to pay for your ticket. I was already working two part-time jobs in high school. I moved out of the house when I was 16. And um, so you buy your ticket <laughs> to this country in Africa, <laughs> and they give you a place to stay. It's supposed to be you know, supervised and monitored, but it wasn't really. It was kind of a scam. Um, so that's how that all happened. It was, I didn't wow. have anybody looking into it for me. I didn't have a yeah. parent saying, let's check into this and see if this is a good program or not a good program. I just chose it. Mm. I got my ticket and I went. Mm. Um, 
and it changed my life. But one of the pieces that I came back from, in addition to like experiencing a civil war and living completely rural and isolated and realizing that nobody actually gives a hoot what's happening in Sierra Leone. Like nobody knew there was a war happening. Mm -hmm. We had faxes then. We didn't have any kind of other communication. Mm -hmm. I got to work in a clinic where um, most of the people that came in would die. And I realized that I wasn't running away from that, that there was something that was, um, I don't want to use the word comfortable, but familiar. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why or how, and I assumed it would be going to medical school and becoming a doctor. And that led me to all of these different pathways. But from that beginning, from that early stage, it was recognizing that there was, I could catapult myself into a completely different territory and find comfort there and find a way. And so I, I guess that would probably had led me to doctors without borders and working in end of life and, um, all of the different areas that I've worked in that can seem really different to other people, I actually feel like it's exactly the same. Mm. I'm, I'm this person that is arriving and showing up in an environment and paying attention to the landscape and seeing what's possible. And I feel that way with end-of-life work, that it's, it's such an opportunity to bring people to a place of their own awareness. That's what I love about hospice is not that the nurse or the chaplain or the social worker or the doctor is some amazing miracle worker that knows how to do something that nobody else does. It's that they show up and support the family in a way to say, you can do this. Mm. You're doing this. You're already doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm here to remind you that you're doing it. You're giving agency. Um, so I, yeah, that to me is, is the biggest, the most important thread. And when I, when I came back from my years with doctors without borders, what impacted me the most was when that line got blurred, when it became about the humanitarian workers doing something. Um, that didn't feel right to me. When it was more around how do we empower mm-hmm. and remind these communities that they already know how to do this, they just don't have the resources or the time to bring the resources to themselves because they're busy surviving. Um, it's not about them not having something. Um, and reminding them what's possible. I love that element of it. And so I feel like with my work with Humane, at Commonweal, at Mental Health, it's for me, it's all about reminding people what they're capable of, giving them the space to be capable of something. Mm. And it probably stemmed from me from an early age, not feeling that I was capable, that there was something that I had, that I could do. Um, so I think there's a thread there that I'm still working that feels a little even vulnerable saying it now because I'm just mm. sort of voicing it for the first time. Like, oh, yeah, that's why I'm so emotional and mm. and fragile, because I think that's a common thing. It's like we're constantly wondering, does my life, do I matter? Mm-hmm. Does my life matter? What am I offering? And what does that even mean to offer something? And how do I know that I'm offering something? And for me, I know it when people feel autonomous for me for what even though that seems kind of the opposite right it's almost like um i don't i don't want to create dependency mm. i have no idea if that answered your question oh totally <laughs> are you kidding and then but that probably is based on my own childhood stuff around dependency or not so that's interesting sure. where we tend to navigate towards but i i feel the strongest and the clearest with my work when when anyone responds by saying they understand themselves better, mm-hmm. not that they're so grateful that I did X, Y, or Z. Mm. Yeah, that feels really important for me to hear. And in prison, it's that's like so obvious, right? I'm not a prisoner. I haven't served time. I'm not living in that environment in any way. There's no way for me to know what it's like. Mm-hmm. So it feels even, it's like this obvious moment where I can say, let me, give you permission to just be yourselves in here and support each other. This is not about me. This is not about me and wonderful volunteer going to prison. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just here to tell you, you can do it (laughs) and I'll support you. Yeah. I, I would say when Sandy, I mean, you know this, but Sandy asked me after coming to the open mic, if I wanted to talk to the, the guys, um, in the humane prison hospice project and, as I've said to you before, I, I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. Yes. Uh, to going into San Quentin and doing that. But it was pretty soon after that, I, that I realized what 
the hell did I have to say to those guys? And that likely while the beginning of you're going to die came from needing to say things and get things that I needed, maybe even like for you leaving Spokane was that act, like you going to get what you need and, and figure out what that looks like on your own. Mm -hmm. It led to making room for others to get what they need and be what they need to be and be held yeah safely and and when i went into the prison it was like oh well, i'm not doing a talk i'm not like making a speech here i have nothing to say to these guys i have so much listening to do mm-hmm. and that that was like the open mic was what we did the first thing was like what what do these guys have to teach me mm-hmm. what is their knowing and how can they hold each other and they're being vulnerable with each other because yeah. i'm gonna go after three hours i'm gonna leave right but and you did have something to offer, right? And I think that's the piece that's been the edge for me, and, and it still is this edge of mm. how can I possibly have something to offer? Mm. You know, like this person—they're they're so amazing. They're doing everything, and it's and it's back to that both and yes, they are very capable. They are a whole human being, and so am I. Yeah. And so there is a synergetic. There is a synergy that's happening. It is it is important that a conversation is happening. It is important that you exist and that you created your program and that you came into San Quentin, right? Like mm-hmm. that having um, that this I was had a great conversation on um, the New School talk with Pat McCabe, Susan Baldus, um, and through Commonweal. And Pat was speaking about this power over dynamic that we've been so enamored with that everything is about power over under so we're either giving power to or taking it right like so even saying like oh what could i possibly offer Mm. this way that we tend to not both show up with an equal with equal with with anything being equal Mm. um it's just an interesting relationship thing that we're always working yeah yeah i uh I can tell I feel a lot about that. Um, it's sort of balance of, of that, the meeting place, the arrival, uh, and showing up that, that both parties, let's say, if it was like um, one of the guys inside and you, that you both your survival depends on both your arrivals. Yes. Yeah. And I, yeah. I know that I think about that in a very different way because I have a mixed heritage, right? So I have brown skin so I, I experience the world as a person of color but I am also Irish and German mm-hmm. I, I have white ancestry so what am I going to do banish all white people <laughs> banish half of myself <laughs> because I'm upset with them like that isn't going to work and so I on an internal level I can't separate that mm-hmm. and so it's been it's been something that I've had to really negotiate in myself so I tend to just banish all of myself, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, all of it is bad, which isn't mm. also very helpful either, but. Right. Um, I mean, yeah. I appreciate your vulnerability around this lady bird. I appreciate, I connected to kind of us talking about sort of both of us being nervous and what that would feel like for you. And, and even our first conversation, which is the, well, I don't know. I mean, am I, are you, I, I feel like your first email <laughs> response was like, wait, are you sure you want to talk to me? Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, uh, for sure. I knew then, but now I'm definitely sure. And the way we're kind of always figuring those inner landscapes and how that inner part really relates and can show up on the outside. And, and I, so I really, I relate to that and appreciate you just being honest about that. But just, if I could just take this moment to say <laughs> that, uh, I needed you, you know, I needed you to show up today and have this conversation with me. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's very, even in this new, new friendship, our second time we've ever talked just really getting that and and starting to really get who you are in the world and what you what you bring to others um i uh am really present to that right now um i'm wondering yeah thank you i'm wondering um about that first deathbed before i before maybe you speak a little bit about what you're specifically working on right now kind of where all of this that we're talking about is showing up right now in your work i am curious about the first deathbed do you remember that deathbed do you remember that i experienced a death yeah Mm -hmm. um yeah actually um 
when I was nine, um, my mother, uh, let's see, not to make this too complicated. We were living with uh, extended family. So it was my mom, my stepdad, my brother, my stepfather's father, so my grandfather, and his wife at the time, and mm-hmm. three other cousins. So it was a huge household of chaos. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandmother at the time developed a brain tumor and um, started to die. And this was back in the 80s. Um, and so we, she, her hospital bed just was put in the living room and the upstairs mm-hmm. of the house was a circular house. So you could just walk in a circle around. There was a fireplace in the center that faced out in three different directions. So you could just walk around the whole top, which was really great. And she was in the living room on that top floor and she had her death experience um, in that living room, in that bed. My mother was is a nurse, was a nurse, and she did most of the caregiving. Um, and the rest of us just ran around with grandma dying in the living room. And she wasn't a grandma that I had grown up with. She was a a short-term grandma. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't like somebody that I was deeply bonded to or that even my parents were deeply bonded to. She was a step-grandmother, stepmother for my stepfather at the time. Good grief. Um, but there was a normalizing of that. Like I can see her vividly. I can see the drool coming out of the side of her mouth because of the brain tumor and the loss of functioning that she was experiencing, the way the words were not able to come out of her mouth, the pureed food we had to give her the turning and positioning the catheter. Like I can see all that really clearly. And also remember being eight and a half and running around and playing with my little brother and star Wars figures in the room by the fireplace. And both everything was happening. It wasn't um, everything had to stop because grandma may was dying. And um, that had a very strong impact on me. Mm. Um, so I think that was, that's the first deathbed that I remember um, in my life, so it's pretty young. Jesus, don't cry. You can't rely on me, honey. You can combine anything you want. I'll be around. You were right about the start. Each one is a sad and sun Tall buildings shake Voices escape Singing sad, sad songs Tuned to chords Strung down your cheeks Bitter melodies Turning your orbit around Don't cry You can rely on me, honey You can come by anytime you want I'll be around You were right about the stars Each one is a set and sun shake voices escape singing sad sad songs tuned to chords strung down your cheeks bitter melodies turning your orbit around voices wide skyscrapers are scraping together your voice is smoking last cigarettes all you can get turning your orbit around Everyone is a burning sun. Mm-hmm. 
wild and shake Voices escape singing sad, sad songs Turn to chords strung down your cheeks Bitter melodies turning your orbit around Voices wide Skyscrapers are scraping together Your voice is smoking Last cigarettes, all you can get Turning in orbit around Last cigarettes, all you can get Turning in orbit around Last cigarettes, all you can get Turning in orbit around Okay, that was our friend Aviva Le Fay's cover of a Wilco song, Jesus, etc. And Aviva, just, you know, another member of this network of musicians that I've had the pleasure of meeting because of the shows that we do. She was actually one of the musicians that helped hold space a few months ago for one of our online open mics which happen every month, the third Thursday of every month. So just check our website, yg2d.com, to see when the next one is, because there likely is one online, and maybe will always be one online, and then eventually something in person. That'll be up there, too. Do you say maybe always online? Yeah, I just kind of feel like one thing that we proved maybe during this year, especially with the the cancer patient workshops, is that these online offerings maybe should have been happening before the pandemic. I, I wonder, though, you know, like with the cancer patient workshops, the the lives of these people already, especially the immune compromised people would have led to them being on these calls, right? They're just like, well, I can't go in. I don't want to add another trip into the hospital. And maybe the pandemic was required for another population to get what was available online. You know, these people that we've connected to that we would have never met if we hadn't had the opportunity to gather in the online space. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I would always want to offer, even if it's every few months, a chance to connect to those people who don't live in the Bay Area. I had a question for you, Ned. Mm -hmm. I would like to use some of our time together to go deeper and get to know each other better. Um, (laughs) I would like to know from you, where and when in your life do you feel the most alive? Yeah. Um, You know, I... I would be remiss not to acknowledge the places in my life, the private places that I really let myself fully arrive. You know, I think about being alive as an arrival of fullness of being where you are. And I'm still the kind of person that gets very scattered and has my head one step of head, uh, my head one step ahead of itself into the next thing <laughs> that I sort of have to get done and work on and, and announce and post and, and it's okay. I feel like a lot of, a lot of you're going to die is born from having that inclination, but the times I feel alive are when I'm really present with my kids and mm-hmm. feeling vulnerable and, uh, paying attention with them and and my, my wife, but also a really definitive version of that outside of the family and friends is, is the spaces that we facilitate. And I feel my, I just like have the feeling and say so a lot lately, getting to a grief and healing workshop or an open mic event where I say at the beginning, I, there's nowhere else I want to be. Like, what other, dec- mm. what other better declaration is a, 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 like being alive and feeling yourself somewhere than 
uh, like I don't want to be anywhere else but you with you. You know, listening to you, holding space with you. Um, and that that is that thing I've said about you're going to die, which is like when people ask, do you think do you think the open mic like makes people feel better about dying? And and I, I, early on, I think I I learned the response or knew the answer to be. I don't know that that's true, but what I do know is that when I leave an event and what I've heard people say is that they felt more alive than before they got there. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of it is like being in redwoods or being next to the ocean, um, a be uh, arriving in a new city and just wandering around the streets with no map or plan or recommendations and just feeling that feeling of discovery i think makes me feel the most alive um eating often does if it's if i got a ingredients at a farmer's market and i lovingly thought about what i'm going to make and the whole process of making it and sitting down with my family and eating that thing, like that whole process of this is now going to become part of me. And I loved every part of it. You know, that that's a moment where I feel really alive. And I was thinking like a, a lot of those moments are that presence that you're talking about is what I would expect in some ideal circumstances of, of a death. What I would hope for would be if it's not going to be sudden that it would that would, there would be time to be really present in my body and feel this process happening of you know not not that i would expect it to feel great but just it would demand this presence that even as it's approaching death i w i would think i would feel most alive in, in that sense of i'm in my body in this natural process that has happened billions of times and it feels very real <laughs> you know it's a s silly way to put it, but like, it can't be discredited. It can't be redefined. Uh, it's just, this is happening. This is real. Um, and uh, that's another moment that I thought would connect the two, you know, between life and death. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you listing all those things as other options that I do relate to from the city walking, like a new city to a, when you're traveling to like being in nature. Um, and, I've been kind of sick the last few days, got a little stomach bug that laid me out. And there's something I've said for a while that I think, you know, while life, I'm not sure how well I'm doing, but dying, I think I'm going to be really great at it. I think I'm going to be really yeah. good at it. And I think partly why maybe I know that or think that is because of how it feels to be sick and that access point to disappearing and withdrawing from mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. the, the, the permission you have to really be where you are, I, I have to say I can't separate that from the discomfort and pain and illness experience. There's, there's almost maybe more in my life than ever, but definitely in the last few days being sick, the feeling I had of, of, of being in that permission and even the appreciation of, of my small world and my bed and my sleep and my fading in and out of relationship with real reality and dreams. And, um, so I, 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 I feel, I felt that the last few days, like aliveness in my sickness. And that's mm. not to make light of anybody's yeah. sickness and chronic illness. And I don't wish it upon me anymore. It feels really nice to be on the other side of that, but I did feel alive in being sick. And I felt it, it felt nice to like be a, a pseudo version of, of dying. And, and so then like feel the lightness of, and the aliveness of, not existing anymore what's the title of uh this episode again it's actually okay that you'll be completely gone yeah totally thanks nick yeah welcome my pleasure thanks everybody until next time bye bye <laughs>